0: Well, welcome to the Kavis Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog, the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas.
1: And I'm Chris Cervelo. Coming up, does the United States Navy have the right idea about how it uses and deploys its forces? One group of naval analysts thinks the whole fleet structure should be redefined. We'll discuss... And how do the Chinese view U.S. Navy surface action groups? How are they maintaining their rapidly growing fleet? We'll take a look. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world.
0: Elements of the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit embarked on the Iwo Jima Amphibious Ready Group are reportedly among the 3,000 troops being sent to Afghanistan to provide protection as the U.S. relocates embassy personnel from Kabul to Hamid Karzai Airport. The Washington Post reported August 12th that the 1st Battalion 8th Marines from the 24th MeU was taking part along with the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines coming from a Marine Crisis Response Force in Saudi Arabia. From the Iowa National Guard, the 1st Battalion 194th Field Artillery was also reportedly taking part.
1: The British attack submarine Artful arrived in Busan, Republic of Korea, on August 12th for a port call. The sub is one of at least two astute class subs that have operated with the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group 2021 on its cruise to the Western Pacific. Queen Elizabeth herself was at Guam beginning on August 6th, while the frigate Richmond arrived at Sasebo, Japan, on August 8th as the task group fanned out across the region, and Queen Elizabeth is expected to follow the submarine by visiting Busan as well. The first P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft for Norway flew for the first time on August 9th. Norway is buying five of the planes to replace a fleet of P-3 Orions and DA-20 Jet Falcon aircraft. Norway is the eighth country to buy the Boeing-built Poseidon, joining the United States, Australia, India, the United Kingdom, South Korea, New Zealand, and Germany.
0: The carrier, Gerald R. Ford, completed its third and final full-scale shock trial August 8th off the northeast Florida coast. Like the previous test, the blast from the 40,000-pound underwater explosion registered a 3.9-magnitude seismic disturbance. The tests, which the Navy calls successful, bring to a close a four-month period devoted to the shock trials. The Ford will return to the Newport News Shipbuilding shipyard where she was built for a six-month period to remove thousands of sensors installed for the shock trials, repair any damage from the tests, continue work to certify the last four of 11 advanced weapon elevators to get the ship ready for workups in the spring to deploy later in 2022.
1: The Navy's large-scale exercise 2021 continued in early August with dozens of ships, aircraft, and units taking part on a global scale. The command and control effort includes many units taking part virtually from their home port or base, including major fleet units off the Atlantic and Pacific U.S. coasts in Europe and in the Western Pacific. The expeditionary sea ship Herschel Woody Williams, the only ship assigned full-time to U.S. Africa Command, has been operating off the continent's west coast. Her current cruise has featured operations with Morocco, Senegal, Liberia, Ghana, and Nigeria. The Williams is homeported at Souda Bay on Crete in the Mediterranean Sea.
0: The Coast Guard on August 4th ordered four more fast response cutters from Bollinger Shipyards, completing the planned class total to 64 cutters. 44 of the 154 foot craft, also known as the Sentinel class, are in commission. They've been replacing 110 foot island class cutters around the United States and more recently in Guam and Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. The FRCs are the smallest of the three cutter classes developed in the early 2000s under the Coast Guard's deep water program. The other cutter classes are the large national security cutters and the newer offshore patrol cutter, which is yet to enter service.
1: And finally, we have a SECNAV. Carlos Del Toro was sworn in on August 9th as the U.S. Navy's 78th Secretary of the Navy, Del Toro, a 1983 Naval Academy graduate who was born in Cuba, was a surface line officer who rose to command the destroyer Bulkley before leaving the service for a career in industry. He takes the helm of a Navy facing severe budget challenges, as well as questions about the service's overall direction. And that's a quick roundup of Naval News.
0: All right. Well, turning to our our main topic, our first main topic today, U.S. Navy strategies. Our friends Brian McGrath and Brian Clark this week came out with another piece urging the Navy to alter its basic fleet architecture. McGrath and Clark cite a 2017 study produced by the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments that they both took part in, where they urged the Navy to reorganize into two separate and distinct forces, a maneuver force centered in the Pacific and a deterrence force in the Atlantic. The forces would have different missions and different force generation models. McGrath and Clark, note that the current overriding operational construct under the optimized fleet response plan, the OFRP, is wearing down the Navy and not getting the most out of the forces it has. Chris, you've been uh, doing some, some talking about this. What do you think? What are these maneuver and deterrence forces as envisioned by McGrath and Clark?
1: So before I jump into that, Chris, I just want to remind um, our listeners, uh, this writing is available on, on the Commander Salamander uh, blog uh, post. If you haven't seen it, I, I would recommend that you go and check it out. And this will be the uh, subject of a full 30-minute pod uh, on VAGO's Defense and Aerospace Daily podcast on Tuesday. Um, so if, if uh, in our discussing of this, we pique your interest, be sure to check that out. Um, so McGrath and, and Clark, as you said, they piggyback on the two hundred or the two thousand and seventeen study that they did with CSBA, um, where they called for maneuver and deterrence forces. Let's start with deterrence forces. Deterrence forces would be those forces that operate day to day all over the globe, do the things that naval forces typically do by making the bad guys and our adversaries and, you know, potential enemies say not today, right? They are going to deter uh, the bad guys from, um, from creating trouble. And whether that's China and Russia at the high end, whether it's uh, North Korea, Iran, or whether it's pirates on either side of, uh, uh, of Africa, um, th- their role would be to basically keep the status quo, Maneuver forces, as the two Bryans explain it, essentially would be our high end forces. They talk about carrier strike groups, particularly the carrier air wing, they talk about attack submarines, um, and then other elements of the naval force that could go back and forth from deterrence to maneuver. But essentially, this is where the kinetic operations would occur um, in the maneuver force. As you mentioned in the introduction, their hypothesis is, is that the um, optimized fleet response plan is not optimized for an entire fleet. It is certainly not optimized for both maneuver and deterrence forces, and they believe that it's not optimize for forces on both coasts, because the, the missions are very different. So they've called for a, uh, a breaking down of how we build up our, our forces before they deploy, um, and separating um, the maneuver and deterrence forces, they would each then have their own, you know, response plan, if you will, uh, to get ready to go out and do their mission.
0: I think they're, they're also talk a lot about, you know, reducing predictability, and trying to um, junk up, if you will, the, the operational profile to keep the Chinese guessing. Um, I'm not sure always guessing about what, guessing about what commander's in charge, guessing uh, obviously where ships are at any, any given point, but that, that sort of comes with the territory anyway. But it's um, this, the, this element of uncertainty they're always trying to introduce. Sometimes I think, though, that runs counter to the mission of deterrence. Whereas deterrence itself is sort of based on predictability. You know they're going to be there. You know that if you do something, they're going to show up. Um, that that in, and of, in and of itself has value. And it's sort of hard to tell, for me anyway, to tell where they're breaking the line on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, with the benefit of hearing them uh, talk at length, um, both back in 2017 and then um, I I was on uh, the recording on Thursday when they spoke to Vago, what they would say is is that at a high level, the deterrent value that that you're concerned about would exist because our adversaries and our friends alike would know that there were always going to be ships in the places that there needed to be ships. Where the predictability comes is, is that um, our adversaries wouldn't be able to count on when high end units would flow in and out of theater, that there would be a lot more um, comings and goings of especially lower end forces um, you know, in the deterrent force than there is now um, that would kind of keep our um, adversaries guessing as they try to figure out what platform is where and when. If we are going to compete with the Chinese and the Russians, they need to see us day in and day out um, you know, I've mentioned many times, I worked for a boss that talked about the value of naval forces being that the bad guys have to question whether or not they want to do something day in and day out. While anything that allows us to get availability out of our forces is a good thing, both Brian's recognize to do this long term would be a big disruption to the surface force, particularly Um, It would be a disruption in how we currently maintain. So there would be a significant investment to get us there, both in in terms of time and money. And it would be a disruption to our sailors. There are reasons that we try to provide predictability, not just for deterrent value, but also for the lives of our sailors. We tried this um, several years ago with the Truman deployment, or at least they claimed that it was part of the Truman deployment where the ship went out on deployment um, and then suddenly came back and kind of hung out in a high right. stage of readiness in, in the Norfolk op area, um, and, and kind of cloaked it in this idea of, um, deterrent and maneuver force. Yeah. They
0: weren't in the Norfolk operator. They were pier side, right? Right. At, yeah. at Norfolk base for five weeks. <laughs> and the Navy said they were on deployment. The ship is on deployment. You can go take the tour boat in Norfolk and see it every day. Right. Um, sort of a odd sort of situation. Um, but you know, o- OFRP is is something that grew out of, I even grew out of you know Desert Storm, and the the desire to surge ships, uh, if need be, but do it in a more um, organized fashion, and and it, it happened again after 9/11, and the OFRP came, the the FRP came up, the Fleet right. Response Plan, came up essentially centered on on aircraft carriers. Um, and not necessarily the fleet, but the fleet is tied to the carrier deployments. So ipso facto, if you're going to do the carriers, you're also doing the cruiser anti-air warfare escorts and the destroyers that go out with it. Um, but, you know, the Navy has been centered on these carrier deployments pretty much since the 50s, the, 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 the beginning of the 1950s. And it started actually the end of the 40s, really. It started as a six-fleet. Um, effort to to, to deter communism in the Mediterranean area in Europe. And then after the Korean War, even more so in the Pacific. So the carrier rotations pretty much defined how the Navy operates. It was was junked up during the Vietnam War, where gradually everything had to focus on, on operations in Vietnam. But when that conflict ended in 1975, uh, the fleet went back to the same construct. And they pretty much hung that way, even though we, the, the, the emphasis on Europe it went away um, after Desert Storm, the rise of the Cent- Central Command, Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf deployments, which have continued to this day. And it rags out everybody. It, it's, it's a long way to go. Um, it, the Navy makes a major effort to do that. Of course, for a while, um, CENTCOM was asking for for two carriers out there and it was killing the Navy to do it. It was supposed to be a surge and then they left it there. So there's, you know, it's they're meeting these requirements it has been a challenge for the Navy for many, many years and just different approaches to how you should go about it. I mean, right now we have, we have the Japan-based carrier is operating in CENTCOM. Um, so it's just, it, it, it's a never-ending issue about how do you get the most out of your fleet and people are tired of it, seems to me, they're always tired of the same routine that's been going on for decades and decades, and it's right to question the efficacy of it. I don't know that the Navy itself is terribly enthusiastic about the, a proposal like this, which essentially would pretty much decouple a lot of the Navy from the carrier deployments.
1: When you hear Brian and Brian talk, um, and you know, again, both when this was first rolled out in 2017 and, and as they... Um, talk specifically about this blog, um, they recognize that this is a major departure from where we are today and that it would take work. And I, I don't think that they expect that Naval Surface Forces or, you know, PAC fleet will grab this thing and run with it in totality. But, I, but what I take away from it is, is that, you know, they're very clear. If, if you want to be present in the levels that we need to be present around the world, you need a lot more um, ship availability. You get ship availability by either having more ships, by having less ships in the yards uh, for maintenance, or by coming up with a deployment construct that gives you a lot more on station time. And I think this is their contribution to um, trying to think differently about how we put ships on station uh, and how we keep our um, our adversaries uh, guessing and our allies comfortable that there's always going to be Navy ships around the world.
0: All right. So, okay. Well, in terms of thinking differently, we have something going on right now called the large scale exercise. Um, something that was trumpeted last year by CNO Mike Gilday, but um, not a whole lot of information came out about it until starting with around August 5th or so, when the exercise itself started. Um, this is a it's, it's happening across the globe. It's involving multiple senior level um, uh, commanders. It's a joint exercise. It's an international exercise. Quite a number of units are at sea, in the air, operating under this. And a number of units are peer side, taking part virtually. Um, it's a, it's a, it looks like a major, but it, in, in essence, it's not, it seems not so much an operational exercise like most exercises are this is a command and control exercise. Do you, think, do you think that's what's happening here?
1: I am a big fan of what the Navy is doing here with the large scale exercise. One, the fact that they're operating across these many different theaters, um, showing our adversaries and allies um, you, you know, that, that we have the ability to get out in big numbers, I, I think is very important. Two, Um, And probably more important is this ability or testing of the Navy's ability and the Marine Corps' ability to net ships together both underway at uh, pierside in maintenance conditions and work in this virtual training environment. And so this to me is the future of how um, our fleets um, and our joint environments are going to interact together to get high end training uh, both when we were underway showing the flag and, and when our, our, our ships are pierside side having maintenance done so I, I think this is a, um, this is a big deal. Now, what I hope happens as I mentioned last week, I hope the Navy minds the hell out of the data that they get from this exercise. And I hope that they share that data with industry and I hope that they share it with all of the different stakeholders that have a vested interest in naval operations, both at home and abroad, um, so that we really get the most out of this. Success can't just be, hey, we did our two week exercise. We've really got to be able to move this, um, the technology and the uh, tactics of this exercise forward.
0: Moving forward into another topic, um, this week, uh, Sam Legron, writing in US on news, had an interesting story that he, he, he took from a Chinese report, um, taking a look at distributed lethality, U- US Navy distributed lethality concepts, and how it might apply to surface action groups. Uh, it was it was, pretty, it was interesting reading these things from the Chinese point of view. Mm-hmm. We don't always hear this, but we hear about China. We hear analysts talk about it, but we, we, we really hear from the Chinese directly. And this was a, was a translation of a, of a Chinese report that he, he wrote on. Um, uh, I'll just read a little bit of this. Chinese researchers compared the littoral combat ship with other surface combatants, arguing that, that the former, the LCS, modularity, its cheap price, its high speed, and other characteristics enable it to become a powerful tool in future distributed lethality tactics. In particular, the, uh, the, the Chinese looked at a surface action group formed about a, from a DDG 1000 a Zumwalt class, armed with its advanced gun system and its and its extended round guided munition shell, which is now no longer <laughs> operational, a DDG 51 early Burke class destroyer and a littoral combat ship armed with naval strike missile, and the Chinese take on this was this was a pretty darn effective unit, something that they had to take seriously and look at how they would respond to this. Ironically, of course, the, uh, the U.S. Navy has dropped the advanced gun system, which actually worked quite well on the, on the DDG-1000s, but the shell was, was prohibitively expensive, largely due to the drastic cuts in the number of ships they were going to buy. Right. Gonna have, at one point, you were going to have 64 guns that you would all need shells for, and you wound up with six guns, and that just drove the price to the roof, and, and, and it was canceled for that reason. Right now, the the naval strike missile is is only is not on any of the currently deployed LCSs. There, there was one that LCS that deployed with it. Others have been fitted to carry it, but they're not out out with it. And the Navy isn't ordering very many NSMs. There's 34 in the current budget, which is kind of a less than impressive number. Uh, and yet, the Chinese are looking at this going, "This is pretty good stuff." Um kind of, kind of ironic compared to the endless criticism you hear in the U.S. One of the aspects of this, though, is at the moment, we're trying to get rid of half the LCSs we have. So Navy is discussing decommissioning most of the freedom class ships and concentrating just on the independence class, the, the Trimoran. Uh, whether that happens or not, whether Congress lets it happen or not remains in question we're downgrading it we've downgraded the uh, the DDG 1000s with at the moment have a pretty questionable future maybe fielding a hypersonic weapon in uh, 2025 we'll we'll see um, but it's interesting that that, that 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 the Chinese apparently are looking at at, at our ships with uh, a more i don't know is pr- praised the right word they're looking at at the lethality of these ships uh, on a higher level than we do, we seem to do here in the U.S., certainly from a critical point of view. Um, just turning to the the Chinese themselves, you know, they're building all these ships. Um, they are fielding uh, ships at the rate that nobody can even begin to compare or uh, uh, compete with. Um, there's, well, there's no way we can, the U.S. can match the, the building rate. On the other hand, the Chinese, we, we don't hear much about their problems. We hear endless problems about patrol combat ship, about the Zumwalt, about the Ford-class aircraft carrier, about anything. And every time there's a new ship, it doesn't work. Um, the, the the critics pile on these programs relentlessly and never-endingly. It comes in Congress, it comes from the Pentagon, it comes from within the Navy, and it comes from, from pundits all around. Um, and yet, there's no reason to think that the Chinese are, are immune from all these problems. I mean, they have to. I mean, logic tells you that when you build a first of class ship, you're going to have problems. The Chinese built the the largest service combatant under construction right now in the world is the Type 055 cruiser destroyer. Um, It's a first of class, it's a major jump up from them in terms of sensors and capability. And one must assume that, that this ship has its share of problems. And yet we hear nothing about it and they're building before the first one was in commission 10 others were under construction in two different shipyards logic tells you that they have all kinds of problems we just don't hear about them there's an element about a sort of a paper tiger are, are we are we building them up into this you know big bo- bogeyman boogeyman that is omnipotent um we but they but you rarely read anywhere about their issues and their problems. Why? Why is that, Chris? Why, I mean, what do you what do you think happens here?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's easy to um, to look at the numbers and to look at the rate of growth and you know be awestruck and maybe not see the force for the trees and you know. And what I mean by that is the problems and the challenges that all navies have, both with you know bringing new technology on with um, you know maintaining a fleet a rapidly growing fleet with fielding uh, competent sailors there is a temptation to um, you know view the Chinese as, as 10 feet tall um, you know three or four years ago I had the opportunity when I was working with the chief of Naval operations at the time to visit um, a, a few of the Chinese uh, shipyards and I've had an opportunity to see Chinese ships when they went to Um, you know, different fleet reviews, one in India and and one in Singapore. And, you know, their ships are very, they look very different than our ships. Um, they look like museum ships. They do not look like ships that are operated hard, um, that are that are wrung out the way we ring out our ships or the way Allied ships are, are, uh, are operated. And so, I, you know, for me, I, in fact, I think I mentioned this to you uh, four years ago when I came back from China. I, I wonder just how much they're actually using these ships at a high end in comparison to kind of the NATO model that we grew up watching and, and, and seeing. I don't think we want to make the Chinese 10 feet tall. And I think we should feel good about um, the capabilities that we have and and we should expect and look for more issues that they have so that we have a good sense of, of what they're dealing with. On the LCS piece, I think you get credit for just being there. I think the fact that we have ships, whether it's LCS, DDGs, CGs, right. you name it, that are there on the horizon um, in competition with the Chinese is a good thing. I think it worries them. I think the more um, over-the-horizon capability that we put on these ships, in addition to numbers, bothers them because their Navy is is effective if it's there by themselves, if it can push around the, the smaller countries and the countries that don't want to mess with the Chinese. I don't think it works as well with European navies and, and with our Navy. And so this goes right back to where we started about the deterrent value of what we need to have in the Pacific. I think
0: LCS worries them. And for all the relentless, endless criticism that it gets on this on, in, in this country, um, this this platform has, has I think, I'm sorry, I think it has a lot more use than it's given credit for. And I, I, would, I really would like to see Navy leadership try to make more out of it rather than work so hard to throw them away uh, because it's not exactly what you want right now and it's not perfect right now. Make it work.
1: Now hear this. Now hear this.
0: Now hear this. All right, all right, all right. I got it now. Jeez. Not everything works all the time. All right. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week I'm going to say something a little different. One of the easiest things for a naval journalist to do is criticize just about everything. And flaws certainly can be found in just about everything. Any kind of decision making or execution, any kind of ship or system or aircraft is subject to near endless complaints of the why are they doing that? Why don't they do this variety? So it follows that one of the hardest things to do, and indeed one of the riskiest, is to plant praise on a particular program or effort. All right, here goes. I would like to give a shout out to the carrier Gerald R. Ford program. There has been no end of well-justified criticism of this effort since its earliest days at the beginning of the century. Endless delays, endless problems with new technologies, ever-growing costs have been a hallmark of the program, which has produced the most expensive ship ever built by anyone, anywhere. And despite the ship's official commissioning in July 2017, it has yet to make a single operational cruise. Under relentless constant criticism, the Navy grew increasingly gun-shy and covered the program in ever-growing secrecy. In the Ford's first 81 days at sea, not a single reporter or media crew was on board. An unheard-of situation for the U.S. Navy, where a constant stream of visitors coming and going every single day is a routine feature of every aircraft carrier at sea. That it was not happening on the Ford was noticeable and deliberate. But since the ship came out of the shipyard and returned to sea in October 2019, a new spirit has infused the program. Officials routinely meet with media and discuss the ship's progress. Dozens of reporters have been out to see the ship for themselves, with visits even continuing during the pandemic. As a result, there have been more accounts and better accounts of the ship's progress, including reports on things they seem to be doing right. Last week, the ship completed shock trials, and it is now headed back to the shipyard for further alterations. No one is claiming victory. Much work remains, especially to certify the last four advanced weapons elevators. The ship is still a year away from deploying. But the defensive cloud that surrounded this program has begun to lift. It definitely feels better. It certainly seems better. And while we know serious challenges remain, we hope it really is better. So for now, we'd like to say bravo Zulu, well done, to Warship 78 and all those working to get her ready to join the fleet and help defend the country. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian for his support, as well as to the Fincanti Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort.
1: Be sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello,
0: And I'm Chris Cavis Thanks for listening, folks. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.